This is the fourth of four podcasts exploring some of the poetic opening moments in the history of cinema. By which I mean openings that encapsulate the film's content. What I call a compound moment. What we see and hear is so strong, it doesn't merely open the story, but succinctly establishes character, time, place, and above all theme. In the previous podcast, we discussed how those elements are established through dialogue. This final episode will look at how they can be established through narration. Be it in film or literature, the narrator's voice is the voice of authority. It is our guide into and through the story, and so we are predisposed to believe what we are told. So even though sometimes narrators are not characters in the story, there isn't a thing that they don't know about the events. Barry's father had been bred, like many other young sons of a genteel family, to the profession of the law. Royal Tenenbaum bought the house on Archer Avenue in the winter of his 35th year. He was growing into middle age and was living then in a bungalow on Woodland Avenue. But when the film's narrator is a character within the story, the question becomes, how is that voiceover delivered? Is it narrated entirely from off screen? So where are you? You're in some motel room. You just you just wake up and you're in, in a motel room. There's the key. It feels like maybe it's just the first time you've been there, but perhaps you've been there for a week, three months. It's, it's kind of hard to say. I don't, I don't know. Or do you have the characters address the camera? In which case, it's not so much a voiceover, but nonetheless, still, you have a narrator. Max Offels chose to do this when, in 1950, he adapted Arthur Schnitzer's play La Ronde. Set in the fin de siècle Vienna, it begins with the raconteur, played by Anton Walbrook, walking through a quiet square at night. Et moi. And me. Qu'est-ce que je suis dans cette histoire? Who am I in this story? La Ronde. La Ronde. L'auteur. The author. Le compère. The compère. Un passant. A passerby. Je suis vous. I am you. Enfin, je suis n'importe quel d'entre vous. In fact, anyone among you. Je suis l'incarnation de votre désir. I am the personification of your desire. De votre désir de tout connaître. Of your desire to know everything. And in this reflexive, reflective manner, the raconteur serves as our guide through the 11 interlaced stories of love, lust and loss. And although his tone is playful, we never once doubt that he knows what is going on, or indeed, might be deceiving us. Which is a far cry from how Martin Scorsese handled The Wolf of Wall Street. My name is Jordan Belfort. Not him. Me. That's right. I'm a former member of the middle class raised by two accountants in a tiny apartment in Bayside, Queens. The year I turned 26 as the head of my own brokerage firm, I made $49 million which really pissed me off because it was three shy of a million a week. No, 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 no. My Ferrari was white like Don Johnson's in Miami Vice, not red. Delivered by Leonardo DiCaprio, Jordan Belfort's narration is so unreliable, it is all but impossible to figure out which parts are invention, exaggeration, or simple deception. Clearly, Belfort's voice is not the voice of authority. But if the author's voice does not always imply authority, it does imply intimacy. Do I have an original thought in my head? My bald head? Maybe if I were happier, my hair wouldn't be falling out. Life is short. I need to make the most of it. 
Today's the first day of the rest of my life. I'm a walking cliche. When a voiceover is delivered by a character within the story, not only are we taken into their confidence, it is they who are trusting us with their own private thoughts. However, when Jane Campion made the piano, she was consciously playing with and against that very notion. The voice you hear is not my speaking voice, but my mind's voice. I have not spoken since I was six years old. No one knows why. Not even me. Played by Holly Hunter in an Oscar-winning performance, Ada McGrath does not speak, but confides to us her silent thoughts, and that only magnifies our feeling of intimacy. My father says it is a dark talent, and the day I take it into my head to stop breathing will be my last. Today he married me to a man I've not yet met. Soon my daughter and I shall join him in his own country. My husband said my muteness does not bother him. He writes, and hark this, God loves dumb creatures, so why not he? Because she has made the conscious decision not to speak to anyone else in the story, Ada is communicating to us, and only us. Campion wove several themes through her film, gender, sexuality, and colonialism, to name just three. The film is set in New Zealand, and just as the indigenous people there were forced to degrade their native tongue in favour of the English language, in the piano, Campion showed how the same went for women speaking in all languages, no matter what their culture or ethnicity. Speaking at the film's world premiere at the 1993 Cannes Film Festival, where it would go on to share the Palme d'Or, Campion declared a keen kinship between her film and Emily Bronte's novel Wuthering Heights. Bronte submitted her novel for publication under the pseudonym of Ellis Bell, because she sensed it would not even have been considered had the publisher known he was reading the words of a woman. If Bronte's decision was a deliberated one, Ada's decision not to speak is equally considered. Or at least, not to speak in the conventional sense. Instead, Ada expresses herself through her piano, and it serves to underscore her narration. I am learning to speak. My sound is still so bad I feel ashamed. I practice only when I'm alone, and it is dark. The same year the piano was released also saw the opening of The Remains of the Day. Adapted from Kazuo Ishiguro's novel published in 1989, it is a merchant ivory production with a screenplay by Ruth Prower Javala. There are two time frames in Ishiguro's novel, the late 1930s and 1956, July 1956 to be precise. And we must be precise because Ishiguro's choice is crucial because July 1956 was a crucial month in British history. It saw Egypt's Prime Minister Gamal Abdel Nasser's attempt to nationalise the Suez Canal, which not only resulted in the fall of Anthony Eden's government, but also the further decline of the British Empire. But those events are scarcely in evidence in the novel. Instead, the only political element is a secret conference between British aristocrats and delegates of Nazi Germany who are trying to hoodwink Europe into thinking Hitler only wants peace. So, on the one hand, 
Ishiguro's novel operates firstly by omission and secondly by delusion, both of which indicate a profound inability to confront situations directly and communicate appropriately. Which perhaps explains why Prower Javala chose to open her adaptation with a letter. Dear Mr. Stevens, you will be surprised to hear from me after all this time. You have been in my thoughts ever since I heard that Lord Darlington had died. We read in the Manchester Guardian that his heirs put Darlington Hall up for sale because they no longer wished to maintain it. The article went on to say that since there were no buyers for such a large house, the new Earl had decided to demolish it and sell the stone to a local builder for £5,000. We also saw some rubbish in the Daily Mail which made my blood boil. Traitor's nest to be pulled down. This choice is effective in a number of ways. It establishes the two main characters, Miss Kenton, played by Emma Thompson, and Mr. Stevens, played by Anthony Hopkins. And it also very economically delivers an awful lot of backstory. Since the letter recalls events from 20 years earlier, it could easily have sounded like exposition. Instead, the formal tone of the letter is fitting to the times. However, and more importantly, it also subtly hints at the distance between the characters. A distance that is echoed in Stephen's response, which we hear a few minutes later. Dear Mrs. Ben, I propose to reach Cleveton on Thursday, the 3rd of October, around 4 p.m. It would be grateful for a line from you to reach me care of the post office at Collingbondusis, near Hungerford, where I am planning to stop. Mrs. Ben, I always said you possess an amazing memory. My new employer is indeed Congressman Lewis, though he is now retired from political life in the United States. He's already taken up residence at Darlington Hall and will soon be joined by his family. But I regret to say we are woefully understaffed for a house this size. Mrs. Ben, will you permit me once again to sing your praises? Let me state that when you left us to get married, no housekeeper ever managed to reach your high standard in any department. The question then is, will the characters come together? Or will the difficulties in political communication echo through to their personal relationship? But the real thing to note about the voiceover in the remains of the day is that it is not narration. Once we hear the letters, the voiceover is dispensed with altogether which is a trick we often see in films. A narrator is used at the beginning to set up the story, but after the opening moments is never heard from again. I never knew the old Vienna before the war with its Strauss music, its glamour and easy charm. Constantinople suited me better. I really got to know it in the classic period of the black market. We'd run anything if people wanted it enough and had the money to pay. Of course, a situation like that does tempt amateurs, but well, they, you know, they can't stay the course like a professional. Now, the city, it's divided into four zones, you know, each occupied by a power, the American, the British, the Russian, and the French. But the center of the city, that's international, policed by an international patrol, one member of each of the four powers. Wonderful. What a hope they had, all strangers to the place, and none of them could speak the same language, except a sort of smattering of German. Good fellows on the whole did their best, you know. Vienna doesn't really look any worse than a lot of other European cities. Bombed about a bit. Oh, I was going to tell you, wait, I was going to tell you about Holly Martins, an American, came all the way here to visit a friend of his. The name was Lime, Harry Lime. Now, Martins was broke and Lime had offered him some sort, I don't know, some sort of a job. Anyway, there he was, poor chap. 
happy as a lark and without a cent. Another example of which would be Woody Allen's Manhattan. He adored New York City. He idolized it all out of proportion. Uh, no, make that, he, he romanticized it all out of proportion. Better. To him, no matter what the season was, this was still a town that existed in black and white and pulsated to the great tunes of George Gershwin. Uh, now, let me start this over. Chapter one. What is interesting here is that the opening monologue is the only time the film employs a voiceover which means it's not a narration per se, but something else. The opening monologue only came about in post-production when editor Susan E. Morse had completed the rough cut. Overall, Morse found it lacked cohesion in tone and intention. The way the film was playing, no one knew it was supposed to be a comedy and Woody Allen's character, Isaac, was supposed to be a writer. So, at Morse's encouragement, Allen wrote up the opening. Chapter one, he adored New York City, although to him it was a metaphor for the decay of contemporary culture. How hard it was to exist in a society desensitized by drugs, loud music, television, crime, garbage. Too angry, I don't want to be angry. Well, what is it? Voiceover? Narration? Monologue? Clearly Isaac is struggling to write his novel. And as the film develops, Life keeps getting in the way of his art. But if you consider it carefully, the way Alan uses Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue to open and close the film, and the magnificent montages that serve as prologue and epilogue, Isaac's book has been written. We've just seen it. Only he didn't write it. The city did. (laughs) 